One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, source full of secrets, of which we are um, two fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, source full of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So, Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hi, Gary. Hello, Guy. And welcome to the final episode of our school holiday homework. Oh, the dog's just eating it. Uh, uh, and it's another best of episode. But I like, I'm enjoying these because we get to chat as well and say loads of stuff and what we feel and think in retrospect of these artists and who we'd have on again and who, who shamed themselves. Well, exactly. Apart from us. I think it's nice. Not, and also for our listeners, because we always get this thing of when people ask online, oh man, you know, you should speak to, you speak to so-and-so. And you go, we've had them on. Oh, really? The thing is, that- there are so many, but it's, to be fair, there are so many of these and we forget, you know, how many, just how many people we've done. Yeah. And so it's really nice to be reminded, to be taken you back. You haven't through. bumped into a musician and said, oh mate, I'd love to have you on the podcast. And he says, yeah, yeah, I've yeah, been yeah, ex- on. <laughs> it's going to happen, isn't it? It's going to happen. Well, as we get older. So this is, you know, we've got a load of rock colossi in with tousled hair. They're all grooming themselves as we speak, aren't they? Did you just say a load of rock colossi? <laughs> I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> we, oh, you're on four today, aren't you? It was that extra kipper at breakfast. Who have we it? got? Oh, yeah, we, we won't discuss that. I, actually, we will discuss that. I had kippers for breakfast and Guy was still up in his room getting himself ready and <laughs> i had kippers and i said i'm having kippers and he he went oh he said i don't believe it unless you show me a picture yeah pics or it never happened so i sent him a picture of the scraps of of kipper that were left on my plate <laughs> and what did he say I said, oh, wow, proper, on the bone. But then I looked a bit closer and saw there were fillets. And he said in capital letters, fillets, capital letters, that's bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, your life has come to this, zooming in on kipper remnants. (laughs) I think any kipper aficionados out there, and I think there's probably more than we might think, will totally be with yeah, me on this yeah, one. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. But they were, listen, <laughs> it was on the menu. Uh, I was gonna, this is a problem. I'm sorry. I'm upset because, and I would like to know, because when we toured the UK, this is something that bugs me. Kippers are disappearing from our hotel menus. Yes. And it's a disgrace. It's a raconteur's clambering. People are clambering out there, aren't they, for to bring they back are. the They're kipper. clambering for their uh, lot can, can I, you know, last week we spoke a little bit about my summer jaunts as a kid. 
in my dad's Ford Popular with my nan, smoking us into kippers, basically. Right, yes. And I was reminded of, of the holiday camps that we used to go to as well when I was a kid. You know, this is, you know, holiday camps. I mean, we know they're not, they're not known for their classiness, are they? Not in the 60s, not, they weren't. I went to one in Prestatin. No, Westwood Ho. This was Westwood Ho holiday camp. And what I couldn't believe was, you know, it wasn't just sort of busmen and, and locals, and my dad was a printer and families like myself. There on a genuine holiday with his lady friend was Jack from On The Buses. Come on. Oh, I wonder if his lady friend was Gay Brown. Because I knew them when I could, because Gay was a friend of my mum's. Ah, what was they, Jack's yeah. name? Jack, um, wasn't it Bob something? Bob. Yes, Bob. Car- Carpenter? Oh, we'll come up. I'm not sure later on we'll find out. We'll but anyway, find, yeah. we were pretty impressed by that because we thought if a, the star of, of stage and screen and on the buses is at this holiday camp, it must be pretty good. That's right. Well, they obviously weren't paid very well because the whole ethos was a week's holiday for a week's pay, wasn't it? That's what it was meant to be. Ah. The only time I've stayed in Butlins, right, is doing a punk weekender <laughs> with the blockers. <laughs> And I was sharing a, sharing a little sort of apartment with Lee Harris. Here's uh, a proper middle-class wanker story for you. So, because Lee was sort of looking after everyone. He went, here, guy, here's your meal ticket. I was like, oh, where did I get? He said, well, you can go and get fish and chips. Or oh, there's a spa. I said, oh, it's really, well, I'm not really hungry, but there's a spa. Maybe I'll get some face scrub. <laughs> of course, it was a spa supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> oh my I can imagine I Butlins had a spa. people going in to get their maxi pack of crisps and seeing you laid out in an aisle having a massage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found. Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we were recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! So first up, it's John Bon Jovi, who chatted to us from his New York office space with the most recent album, 2020, just a few months old at that time. This was a while back, You were only a few months old, or John Bon Jovi was only a few months old? Uh, I was only a few months old. You were about uh, 75. Um, I can't believe this is back in early 2021. And I can't believe how long we've been doing this because I feel like we've only no, just exactly. started. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, he was great, wasn't he? But, but he, you know, I remember seeing him come up on my computer screen and there he was with the sun coming through the windows in this high rise office in New York. And he, his hair all sort of blonde and grey and just kind of happening, wasn't he? And he the, yeah, yeah. He, he looked... Gravitas. Gravitas. Anyway. This is a man who's seen a million faces and he's rocked them all. And now he's looking at our faces. And he rocked us. John Bon Jovi. John Bon Jovi. There were two things that were happening in New Jersey. Cover bands making $3,000 a night 40 years ago and original bands making $100 a night. (laughs) 
it's a split. Yeah. I chose to do that because I saw what the future was. And so anyhow, getting back to my opportunity to go to the power station, um, I called the guy in September of 1980, getting out of high school. And I says, can I do anything? Can I just do something? He says, sure. You come to New York, come over to the studio. And then they eventually paid me 50 bucks a week to be the gopher. And then if it was a weekend or late, late, late night, I could go in and they would just keep a tally and said, basically, if you ever make it, you got to pay us back. (laughs) So It was basically like a spec deal. And uh, and so, you know, I did. I did pay him. Uh, He got to co-produce the first album and and Sayonara. Who did you um, stay around but, the studio? Any fight? Let, let me tell you what yeah. I saw because yes, no yes, one yes, 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 yes. believes what I saw. <laughs> I witnessed Bowie and Freddie singing the vocals to Under Pressure. Oh, whoa, whoa, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. It was, I looked right through the window of Studio A and I reconfirmed this to another cousin of mine. It's the Italian thing again, yeah. who was uh, also working in the studio. I says, weren't we there then? He says, yeah. So go and look at that vocal credit. The vocal was done at the power station. Oh, well, yeah, because we always because the recording was done in Mont- in Switzerland, wasn't it? But not the vocal. Ah. If I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, 41 I, I, years later. I don't later, think there are other people that look like Freddie and Bowie singing at the same time. Yeah, well, yeah, well, the, well, the, the sparks, maybe. No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the sparks, exactly. <laughs> But Niall and Bernard and Tony, she was always, they were in B every day, every day. And he was the, they were the nicest, sweetest guy. I I, I was shortly after John Lennon was killed and I had a band and we were rehearsing a few blocks away. And I'll never forget this, getting out of a cab, counting out my change to pay the cabbie. So we're sort of tucked in and the stones got out of whatever car it was they were getting out of the stones. At the same time, going into the studio and a photographer jumps out of a trash bin and paparazzi starts taking pictures. Jack in a box. I swear to God, this is true. Jack in the box. The Stones, they open up the door of the studio. Wyman, uh, whoever else was there was Mick and Keith. They, they go in to the studio. I finish counting the change. We jack up my little you know teenage friends. Jack, the, 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 the photographer, and shoo him away because I can go in the studio. The photographer's screaming, Mick, 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 give us a picture. I swear to you. He wow. grabs me and these kids and he says, here's my new band, The Frogs. And we took a fucking picture. <laughs> Have you ever seen it? Is it? Is it ever been published? No, because I thought, I thought the photographer was Ron Galella. I don't know who the photographer was. I thought it was Ron Galella because that picture exists you of me at 18. Have you, have me you, have you mentioned this? Have you mentioned this before? Uh, okay, yeah, I, I have oh, to make that, you know, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know Mick Jagger. I don't know him, but true story. Uh, but I'm telling you, Bruce had just finished the river uh, oh, and little <laughs> Steven was making one of his solo albums and I got to do hand claps on it. And, uh, I mean, it was Devo coming through the ceiling because where we'd sleep upstairs in the apartment, you know, you'd hear the sounds reverberating from Studio C yeah. at the time. Um, you know, so the crazy things of, of the people and the greatest lesson I learned there 
was the bigger the star, the nicer the person. It was the guy that um, you don't hear about today who was not cool. Yeah. Who, you know, the, the, the stones were cool. Believe it, like the fucking Rolling yeah, Stones yeah. are like, hey, kid, how's those demos going? You know, or or even though I had met Bruce back on the, the shore, um, they were always kind. You know, they were always incredibly kind because they knew me from down on the shore. Uh, Bernard and, and Niall and those guys yeah, could yeah. not have been more gracious uh, <laughs> knowing that you were a kid. I knew Desmond had a couple of albums because the poster for what was Desmond Child in Rouge um, hung outside the dressing room, the original bar band in Asbury Park. So I was aware of the name. And so I said, great, let's meet the guy. And so, you know, by happenstance, we got together and wrote these incredible songs. And we said, oh, I think we should keep them. That was the bottom line. And so, you know, Prayer and Bad Name uh, were two of them. But none of us had had any major success. You know, I had two gold albums. Desmond had one top 10 single. His own albums didn't do well. But he, he was obviously a very talented uh, guy. And, uh, and the three of us together, same thing with Bruce Fairburn, who produced that third album. He, he was in a band called Prism. He had, his oh, yeah, biggest yeah. thing was a band called Loverboy. Um, yeah. They didn't, you know, he, he was fledgling as a, pro- a producer. There was a young engineer by the name of Bob Rock. There was a city called Vancouver that nobody had made records in, you know, for real, uh, other than the people from Vancouver. Um, and all of these people came together and this magic called Slippery When Wet. And then Little Mountain Studios became the next generation's power station. That's right. Yeah, it was the absolute Everybody. Yeah. What was that like, though, John, just just writing that first song with Desmond? And uh, I mean, do, I do, you, know. do you remember it? Um, the first one, because there was a song that didn't make it and we want and we gave to a movie. Uh, It was called On the Edge of a Broken Heart. And it was for a movie that we gave him called The Fat Boys, I think. And then um, (laughs) subsequently Bad Name came. And then ultimately Prayer came. And then we had Dead Alive and and Never Say Goodbye and some other ones that Richie and I had finished. Um, We thought we had a a, a really good record. But at the time, and you're gauging this against the radio, it was like if we could have something as anthemic as Power Station – and Robert Palmer had that big hit that year, Addicted to Love. Yeah, I, I played on that album. Have... He played on the album. Did, did yeah. you play on that song? I, no, not on that No, that was Bernard, um, who actually hired me to play on the album. I'm just saying. There you go. 21. So right. Wow. <laughs> so they, they, Power Station and the band, the studio, blah, blah, yeah. blah. So we're thinking, like, if we can have a song that's like that, then I started thinking about anthems that work in an audience, having done a whole lot of touring by this time. Then you start thinking about how that to and fro and how you're doing a cover song at night to win an audience over, especially as a support act. And I'm like, I need a song like that. And it was Joan Jett's hit of I Love Rock and Roll. I need these things called anthems. I need this. And so we started thinking like that. And then we started writing differently. You know, my, my brother, uh, who, who actually you know played in uh, Spandau Ballet as well, he uh, he does a sort of 80s DJ thing that he, when the clubs are open, when we were all before pre-COVID, he goes around, he plays a bunch of 80s songs on stage to a, a couple of thousand people at a time. And um, the, the it's all 80s, but the final song is always living on a prayer. That's the one. Yeah. And everybody out there sings every single word. Mm-hmm. And it's become something bigger than the song you, you three guys sat and wrote. Absolutely. It came from nowhere. None of us had an idea the day we walked in a room. 
We came out with it finished. And I swear I told Richie, eh, it's okay. But also in, in defense of that dumb statement, when he told me I was crazy and he was right, um, there was no baseline. You oh, know, do you know what I was, I was actually about to bring up, uh, by the way? That's the one thing. And the bass like, player has to get as <laughs> a bass player. It, it's a brilliant, it's a, the bass on that song is fantastic. Yes, it is. It's yes, really, it is. really great. Yes, it is. <laughs> and yes, it is. Yeah. Phenomenal bit of bass playing. And Huey McDonald is, yeah. Hugh, Hugh McDonald came up with that bass line. Uh, he was absolutely genius. We worked very hard on that. You know, it was like, we need something that's more Motown. We need something that's more Motown. And then we got, got that round and it worked over all three chords. Because if you think about it, it's E minor, C and D. There's not a lot musically to it. You know, mm. it's Tommy <laughs> used to work on the docks. This could be something going to strike. He's down <laughs> on his luck. It's tough. So tough. Right? So until that's how we wrote it. But again, that was. I need a story. That was my input. You know, everybody had something. I want a story. This is what we're going to write about. And, and everybody had their thing and we created the magic. And in the pre-production room, when Fairburn came down and we were in a demo studio, the bass line was developed. And then ultimately I was dumb and young and agreed to, I didn't come up with, that was a Desmond thing, the goddamn key change. Musical <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> theater moment. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Embrace your inner son time. At 25, that's one thing. At 59, it's a whole nother symbol. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're very lucky it's a call and response song, you know, because oh, you, know, you can just let the audience sing that high bit. You know, that's just a great story, isn't it, about his, his cousin, you know, Tony Bon Jovi. Tony Bon Jovi. And, and, and looking through the window and when he saw them, you know, Freddie and Bowie doing Under Pressure and just being like, you know, I mean, his story, you write that stuff, don't you? And people don't believe it. Sweeping up the power station floor. No, but it, yeah, it is. It, it's like something you'd see in a really cheesy musical. Yeah. And you just go, oh, come on. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we were talking about glam rock. We we're always talking about glam rock, aren't we? On the last episode, you know, where we're where, endlessly, you know, endlessly. endlessly guy. I wonder if it did start in America, though, with Alice. Um, that is possible because it's what's funny is when you look back and sort of you see Alice in this melange of the 70s and glam. But I remember when I was a kid, I was at primary. I mean, he was huge and it was like something you'd never seen before. And, and it was there was a shock and outrage as you would get later with Marilyn Manson and people like that. I mean, it really was a big deal. Wasn't it? Yeah, the theatrical side of it as well. And I think, you know, Alice talks about how, you know, Bowie came to one of those early gigs and he was hugely inspired. I think we just grabbed Alice, didn't we? We only had, this was one of our shorter episodes. I think we got in between golf holes, didn't we, or something? Yes. <laughs> but he did surprise you, didn't he, Guy? Because you thought you knew everything about Pink Floyd. And it turns out, yeah, um, it turns out that, yeah, there was a whole little story I didn't know. Although, having talked to actual members of Pink Floyd since then there was a bit of story to this story ah because Alice talks about living with Pink Floyd doesn't yeah, he? Being, uh, hanging yeah out with living <clears throat> is perhaps a bit of a stretch well one thing is for sure about Alice Cooper is he knows how to do story right he gives good story oh he does when we sat at his feet like adoring children as he rattled yeah. off his yarns Anyway, here he is back in February 2021.
we learned every Who song. We learned every Yardbird song. We learned, you know, so we were a pretty good band, pretty good cover band. And on top of it, we couldn't help from adding that bit of theatricality to it. You know, in other words, if I found a mop backstage, that could be a girl with the hair, you know, that could be something to ride on. That could be a weapon that could be. So it was guerrilla theater. We couldn't afford actual props, you know, um, that developed later when we had money <laughs> where we could actually do a show. Uh, but, you know, I, I, the funniest thing was we were 16, 17 years old. We were the Yardbirds band and we're opening for the Yardbirds, the real Yardbirds. With, you know, <laughs> Jeff Beck and everybody. How in this did that feel? You must have, were you it, terrified of? You know, oh, well, yeah, we, we got to open since we were the house band. We opened for the Birds, the Hollies, the wow. Love and Spoonful, every band. We were the opening act for them, right? But then the Yardbirds come in and we go, oh, my gosh, we do all Yardbird songs. What are we going to do? So we got up there and we did the whole set, <laughs> the whole Yardbird set. And in the back of the room, I could see Keith Ralph. And Jeff Beck, and they're all giving us a thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. And then they got oh, on right. stage. I hope they liked it. <laughs> oh, they loved it. No, they loved it. And they got on stage and blew us off the stage. They were the Yardbirds. Come on. You know, they were the original <laughs> Yardbirds. Yeah. And they were, you know, maybe the best live band next to Paul Butterfield that I've ever heard in my life. You know. You know, Alice, you know, you're, we're, we're sort of so in awe when we hear those names you were supporting. But everybody was kids then. Even the oldest person in rock was a kid. Yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. No, uh, Jeff Beck was 19. This is a youth movement. Yeah, yeah, it was. And we were so in, you know, just absolutely awed by these bands. I never heard a band sing with tighter harmony than the Hollies live. Yeah, they were yeah, amazing yeah, yeah. live. And the Yardbirds were, you know, you think, well, the records are great. I wonder if they're going to be that good live. They were better live than they were on the record. You know, I mean, it was one of those things where you really got to see them at their best. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Graham Nash ended up staying there, didn't he? In in L.A. when he went to L.A., just he, he stayed there. But but you did you went to L.A. then with your band, didn't you? Well, that's where the record companies were. So we finally decided we got to go to L.A. The very first people that we met were the Doors, and and the Mothers. Now, was it uh, talking of which? Yeah, that's right. Because uh, wasn't it you who came up with the line? I woke up this morning and poured myself a beer. Yeah, that's right. I was sitting there with Jim. Jim was writing something, and he, we were both drinking. Ow. And, you know, and he's just going, what's up, man? And I said, well, I got up this morning, got myself a beer and da, 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 da. And he's writing it down. <laughs> Every time I hear did that line. Piece, I, did you no, ever get a piece of that? <laughs> no, no, no. But I know, I know it's my line. <laughs> That's incredible. But so you Wait, ended up, we all know. We all know. We, you, ended up, you ended up in the Zappa set, didn't you? With, with, the, with the GTOs, you know, these fabulous women that were into the most extraordinary fancy wear costumes and... Oh, yeah, they were amazing. They were amazing. They were... Yeah, but no what seems amazing is, is that how these kids from Phoenix go to LA and walk straight into that. I mean, how you no. managed to get straight No, we there. starved. We starved every, you know, every weekend we'd play a oh, bar okay. or any place we could play. And basically, we finally got a, a, a house gig at a place called, uh, it was out in, on Malibu, you know, the Cheetah Club. And there we are at the Cheetah Club and we're, we're the band, except that we're now we're opening for Pink Floyd. And I didn't know who they were, you know, even, <laughs> no, I mean, it was one of those things where we got, a, we finally got into the whiskey a go-go. I mean, I looked at the thing and it said, Alice Cooper. And, and I said, who's Led Zeppelin? <laughs> <laughs> we were both unknown. Totally. That would, have been, that would have been Sid Barrett's one trip. That was Sid Barrett's one trip to America, wasn't it? You know what? They came in 
And we were already very hip to uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. So we knew who Pink Floyd were. Mm-hmm. And when we saw them, we, we you know, we were fans of theirs. Yeah. Just that first record. But like anybody else, you come to America and you're not making money. You're just making enough to get your name out there. Mm-hmm. And they ran out of money and moved in with us. And what? so Alice Cooper and Pink Floyd for what? two or three nights, two or three nights in Malibu. Yeah, oh we had a, we had a house where I, I get up in the morning and there's Sid Barrett and he's looking at a box of cornflakes and apparently they're dancing for him and they're they're doing a whole show. The box of cornflakes are. And we're going. I, I'm sorry, I've, I've played with Pink Floyd for 35 years. This is the first time I'm hearing this. This is. Oh, if you remember, ask him, ask uh, Nick, you know, yeah, I will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, that's an incredible story because Pretty's for You with the first Alice Cooper album, and we've sort of right. jumped a bit here, really. Yeah. But that has a lot of Sid and Piper yeah. on it, isn't it? Well, Sid was so cool, but he was so out there. I mean, he was just, you know, I mean, you could talk to the other guys. Sid was just in another realm. He mm-hmm. didn't really talk. He just kind of like, you know, uh, he was a satellite, you know, he was, but he was so creative. Him and my guitar player, Glenn, were the only, they would go in a bedroom with two echoplexes and just play sounds back to each other oh, to have had that recorded yeah yeah, yeah. man it, it wasn't but they did they did they did come stay with us for a couple nights and uh in fact we were doing an audition for gazaris and they said hey, we're gonna make brownies <laughs> oh <laughs> see where this is going and halfway, they were sitting there in, during the audition they were in the afternoon the, all the pink floyd guys are sitting there we're on stage auditioning and I fell off the stage three times. I was I was so high on these brownies. <laughs> and Dennis was like falling over the drums and everything. And they were laughing their heads off, you know, because we weren't we were used to smoking. We weren't used to eating it. You know, it's a different buzz. <laughs> show. And I mean, I've seen some old footage. Your show was so theatrical even then. I mean, you were wearing the I mean, I guess the GTO girls had dressed you up. And Pamela had that kind of eyelash makeup, didn't she? On that she she must have put yeah. on. Yeah, we we were doing makeup before that, but but what they did was they came in and they said, "Look, you know, why do you want to look like everybody else?" You know, well, well, we didn't. You know, we were we we were certainly not like every other band. In fact, we were probably people came to see us in L.A. just so they could say they let that they walked out on us, and <laughs> you know, it, it was it was sort of like we were the bad vibe. Everybody was on acid. And we didn't mind a little violence on stage. We didn't mind a little bit of, you know, in your face violence, real, real switchblades, real blood. And the audience, I mean, would run for the doors. They, would, they hated they uh, hate Tell us it. about, but this, and while dressed in ice capades outfits. Yes. Right? Yes. Well, the ice capades <laughs> came into town. Explain what that is for our English listeners. Okay. The ice capades, uh, garish, you know, horrible you know, stuff. Uh, they were leaving town and they were going to get rid of all their old costumes. So they were selling them for 50 cents a pound. What you see on the back of Pretties for You is all Ice Capades outfits. Because to us, it looked cool. It was sparkly and, it, you know. <laughs> and this is, this is before Roxy Music did their, you know, famous. Yeah. You know, cover it's, bef- it's before Bowie. I mean, I don't know. I'm a bit worried. I wonder about that timeline because I know that Bowie played the Roundhouse famously wearing some sort of glitter in about 1970, but you guys were doing it then as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, Bowie used to come to the shows and bring the spiders and say, This is what we should be doing. 
Yeah, because of course you were the spiders at one point, yeah, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, and, Not and only were they spiders, they were Manaz as well, which is meant both mentioned in the Ziggy Stardust song. Yeah. Coming up after the ad break, we have Brian Johnson, one of the great. Well, actually, these are all extraordinary voices. Brian Johnson, Noddy Holder, Joe Elliott, and of course... David Coverdale. (laughs) That's a big tune for sure. That's a big pause for sure. (laughs) (laughs) You'll have to fill that in. No, leave it. It's Pinterest. Okay. Yes. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. So after having you know, a couple of American superstars on, we are now going to have someone that's more homegrown. And you, the thing is about Brian Johnson from ACDC is, Guy, I mean, I've told you this before, but I'm going to say it again. He was the first rock star I ever saw performing live. That's right. I know. That's that's pretty. You, that never leaves you, gal. That never leaves you. But he was singing for a band called Geordie, who I went to see Slade, because we got Noddy on after this as well, at the London Palladium. And I'd never seen a rock band before. And on came Geordie as the support act with Brian Johnson. I mean, honestly, just the most incredible voice. We saw, we bumped into him recently, didn't we, when we were rehearsing? We did, we did. 
I mean, he's just so wonderful, Brian. It's one of, you just want to listen to him talk forever. It's funny, Gary, we say, because I was thinking then, also, it, my equivalent of that is Graham Parker. Graham Parker is the first person I saw on stage because he was, he was opening for Thin Lizzy. What about Nosey Parker? I was Parker? thinking, you <laughs> said, it seems funny that your first <laughs> rock and roll experience is at the Palladium. Of course. It's, my mother wouldn't let me go anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, well, mine was at the Victoria Apollo, which, of course, is where Frozen is on but now. I was really... So it's like neither of us started in some kind of, you know, know, proper pit. I was really upset the Tiller Girls didn't come on. <laughs> Introduced by Brucey. Anyway, uh, <laughs> has Brian been on? No, he hasn't. We better get him on, Brian Johnson. I saw you in 73 at the Palladium. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's right. 73 was then, so it must have been just after that. But I remember that night, uh, you know, it was packed. It was cops yeah. everywhere downstairs. And we'd just finished and we'd gone round to the sides to watch and Noddy came out with that. You know, his hat with the mirrors on, remember? Yeah, 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 the top yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I was wearing one as well in the audience, probably. <laughs> yeah. No, but I was just blown away by this guy. The musicianship of the band was just... It was really good. But know? I've seen a photograph of that gig and there's no monitors on stage. No. So I don't know how anyone... Do you, how did you even hear yourself singing? I think you just sang louder, you know? <laughs> uh, but you and Noddy both have that same thing, don't you? Of just being uh, just like 0 to 60 and then at 60... You're just at 100 miles an hour non-stop the whole way through. Yeah. You? Which is an extraordinary... Yeah, he's, he's, but, but he's he's exceptional, old Noddy. You know, I've always... Love the way he uh, put a song together, you know, with his voice, and and uh, he, and he can be uh, he can be the other side now, you, you know. Some of the songs they did every day when I'm away, uh, you know, thinking of you, every man. <laughs> so you know, I just I thought they were a good all round band, and never. You know, what what you have. I suppose Noddy had it as well, but you you have it on millions and millions of records. You occupy that space that's way above the guitar. So when most bands, the singers <laughs> singing in the same register as the guitar, but yeah. with 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 what you did in Geordie, and certainly what you do in ACDC, is you you're all living in very separate oral spaces. So you can hear the drums, the bass. Guitar is as clean as anything because yeah. your vocal is way away from it. Although I would say that it's it seems that after because I've been I've been listening to Geordie all afternoon. By the way, great, <laughs> fantastic I'm bass playing. By the way, great bass playing on that stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, really good. And um, but but it seems to me that when you joined ACDC, you jumped an octave. <laughs> well, that, that yeah. was Langer yeah. in the studio. I didn't realize I could do that. Fuck now, you know. Uh, you know, when I was doing, when we did House of the Rising Sun with Geordie, that was about as high as I think I've ever sung in my life, you know. And then when we were in the Bahamas with Mutt Lang, you know, um, who, who I realised straight away that this band, and Malcolm always said, he said, one of the reasons, you know, when you came down and sang uh, at the first, the first time with us, I said to them, Listen, uh, they said, what do you want to sing about our songs? And I knew if I sang one of their songs, I'd be at a disadvantage immediately. And I said, uh, Nutbush City Limits, Tina Turner. Mm -hmm. What? I said, yeah, let's do that one in the key of air. And they went, yeah, are you sure? I said, sure. So we did it. <laughs> but they're Australian. They probably didn't know if you meant A or E. Yeah. But anyway, and that's where it was. And Mal always said, he said it was straight away that it, it, we could tell that you could get above the guitars. 
which was very important, you know. But, you know, that's in, it's interesting that, that you, I mean, we've jumped to this moment in time uh, when you join ACDC. But the story that I, I heard was that Bon Scott had seen you perform yeah. in Geordie. Yes, and and, and, and he already told Angus about this guy who he said collapses like little Richard on stage. But apparently you collapsed in real life. Is that right? It was, it was, I had appendicitis or some shit. <laughs> That's right. And I was in agony. And, and it was, I still tried, I kept singing it. And he was, hey, by Christ, hey, hey. That's a great actor. And of course, <laughs> and, um, but, you know, it was funny. What, what took up a bond in, in the space of an hour, you know, that's, and I never saw him again. You know, that's the, incredible. The, the bus had broken down. There was ice on the streets of Torquay. It was so cold, you know. And we had a little B and B place, and they, the, the bus, their bus they had was absolutely ice cold inside. It was like a fridge. It was dead. All the electrics and everything. So we shared what we could with him and all of that. Of course, he didn't look like Bun. He had spiky hair, little short hair. And he had a couple. He had a big tooth missing at the front, and a little goatee beard. You know, and so it was hard to. to what was yeah. what was he doing there? So you weren't supporting them, were you? No, what, no, uh, no they were doing there. They were supporting us. Uh, the, the, there was an Australian band, and I keep forgetting the name of it. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there. Oh, and Bond had gone to see them. Yeah, he was singing there with the band. They oh, were I see. on tour. They were touring England. But Brian, Australian I mean, bands there were that time before ACDC. Little River Band. No, no, it was the, the, the one that well known. But that's an extraordinary moment in rock history, isn't it? That there was a moment in this story where you yeah. met you met this guy whose place you were going to take. You know, he'd already made six mm. albums with ACDC. I mean, I actually saw ACDC with my brother when I was 15 and he, my brother was 13. We used to go to when they did the marquee residency, Yeah, you know, with, with Bond singing for them, obviously. And, and this little 17-year-old kid, Dressed as a schoolboy, he could probably—he was getting away with it then, you yeah. know. And, uh, and 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 they used and Bond used to bring him out on his shoulders, and then he would drop to the floor in the middle of the pit and just start right. spinning, playing his guitar. And we all stood back. Phenomenal yeah. show. Phenomenal. Uh, show. The word great. At the first time I saw them was on Rock Goes to College, and I couldn't believe it. I think it was black and white. In fact, I'm almost sure it was black and white, and, and I couldn't believe it. And the next thing we did with Geordie too, because we were playing the social clubs. You know, after Geordie, you know, we were all, I was broke after Geordie. We, you know, it was, it was rip-off time, you know, in the 70s. And so we got right royally, you know, uh, ripped off. And um, so I had to stop because I had to start paying the mortgage, basically. And uh, and so I thought, how am I going to make a living here? So uh, I joined this, uh, I went for an interview at a windshield company. I thought, you know, I'm a skilled engineer. Shit, it can't be that fucking hard putting a windshield in it. Right, it wasn't. So I went down for an interview uh, with this guy in a car park at Bertley Services, and it was fucking raining. And I'm sitting, I'm going, what the fuck am I doing? I, I was on top of the pops just last year. <laughs> and I tapped on the window, and this guy's going, one moment. And it was raining. I went, hey, don't be a cunt. <laughs> And I got in and he said, excuse my language, lads, you know, uh, you know, uh, and then um, we got in, he said, right, name, Johnson, he didn't know what he said, because that's where I started wearing this hat. So nobody recognizes him again. 
I thought you were a millionaire. I saw you yeah. on top of pops, like, you know. Because <laughs> that's what we assume. That's you right. Know? Oh, but, yeah. but, but there's a story about the hat, though, isn't there? Or why you switched to the to the flat cap. Isn't that, wasn't that to keep, wasn't it your brother or something? Well, basically, it was it was me brother. You know, yeah. I just saw that there for that. But me brother came to a gig in one of the clubs. Because we were very popular. We are doing about six nights a week in different clubs. And I was always sweating because I had a mass of hair. And I was, I was, his eyes were stinging. And he, he had a sports car. Well, that's because he was single. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I keep saying this to my wife. <laughs> <clears throat> and, he, and he said, You're putting that on. And, oh, Morris, God bless him. He's just a sweet turn. And I put it on. I went, Oh, this is brilliant. It worked. And people were going, because it's the Geordie thing, you know, from yeah, the, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The Andy <laughs> yeah. And I started keeping it on, and and uh, and it was just brilliant. But on Wednesday, you must get hot though, don't you? Don't you get hot? I mean, that's tweet yeah, that thing. Yeah, sometimes not really. It, it doesn't bother you. But a lovely story, lads. Honestly, a lovely story. I got to tell you, I was called out one night. I said, Brian, there's a Cortina Mark IV near Scott's Corner. And it's got a broken windshield. You have to get doing it. It's an emergency, apparently. So I said, oh, all right. And I got me van with me little orange light and shut down the M1, the A1M. And there it was. And, and there was two guys at the front of the car. And the way they acted, it was different from civilians. I knew this was... And of course, I went, right, mate. He said, we got to get down to the Emma Smith Pally by nine o'clock. The show starts. It's 4.30, mate. You know, how long is this going to take? I said, I'll do it in 15 minutes. And he went, no, you wouldn't be matting around with me. He said, I said, no, no, I'll, I'll get it in in 15 minutes. And I did. And there was two guys sitting in the back. And uh, and, and, and I, fast as I could, sucked out a glass and put it in. I says, there you go, mate. It's 25 quid. And he went, there's 40. Thanks, a bundle, mate. And the car started pulling away and it screeched to a halt. It just stopped again. And in the back window went down and a skinny little arm came up with a T-shirt. He went, thank you, mate. And it was Ian Jury. No! <laughs> Ian Jury and the Blockheads T-shirt. Oh, and the car sped off and I went, ah, I want to do that again. And seeing as we've just heard a bit about the legendary Noddy Holder, how about we hear from the great man himself? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think I made a mirrored hat in the art room, but I definitely also made these little cutouts. I made Slade. I made a little puppet proscenium arch. This is in my spare time, by the way, in the lunch break, in the art room. How much spare time did you have? (laughs) It wasn't very grand, but it was a proscenium arch. I made these little stomping puppets that were were on sort of, um, I don't know what you call it. You know, there's, there's sort of, you put sort of uh, a little staple through, through that can move on the knees. So the knees. They had, oh, yeah, they like had, cut out puppets. They're joints. Sort of. And I got two little sticks on each one. I got my mates. One did Dave Hill and the other one did Jim Lee and someone else did <laughs> Dom Powell. And I did Noddy Holder. And we, we mimed to come and fill the noise to about... Two people who weren't impressed. We used to do that in my primary school where girls would sit on the bench in the playground and we'd all we'd all just play air guitar and sing the song. <laughs> and it used to be Slade, so it was about the same time. But Gary, what happened to this model? To this tableau? It's currently in the theatre museum. 
I've no, <laughs> I, I, I've, I mean, really, someone must have destroyed it. I don't know. It's in a landfill site somewhere. There he is, uh, Noddy in a landfill site somewhere, which is where we're all going to end up, isn't it, really, Guy? And I can't Noddy listen. in a landfill site. Wasn't that a Morrissey song? <laughs> listen, I don't want to get too maudlin. In fact, you can't get maudlin with Noddy Holder. He's even got a talk here in this clip. He also talks about the burp, that famous burp that he does on Slade. Oh, the greatest burp in rock and roll. Well, probably the only burp in rock and roll. It is. Noddy Holder. You know, we have to make a decision. Do we carry on or have we had our day, you know, uh, boring old farts? Uh, and we decided we'd carry on and start from scratch, go back to smaller venues. We were still writing and recording. We still had a record deal. We were still selling records in Europe. Uh, and uh, we tried to get on Reading two or three years running. Of course, we weren't cool enough to get on Reading because uh, we'd gone up, you know, we were on the skids at that time. And 1980 came along, and Dave Hill, the guitar player, he pretty much left the band. He'd walked out, he'd had enough, uh, because we were banging our heads against a brick wall and had been for a couple of years. He'd left the band. Then out of the blue, my manager called me and said, uh, Reading want you on. Ozzy Osbourne's band have dropped out. Now, Ozzy was going to be special guests on the bill to White Snake. He had the boot out to Black Sabbath and he'd formed this new band, uh, Blizzard of Oz. They apparently weren't ready to do shows. And I think we were bottom of the list that they called to replace him. Only at three or four days' notice, we were bottom of the list and they called up our manager and said, can Slade do it? So my manager, Chas Chandler, he called me and said, uh, they want you on ready. And I said, well, I'll call the others and see if everybody's up for it. Jim was up for it. Don was up for it. I called Dave. As I say, he'd left. The band had pretty much folded. And I said to Dave, uh, ready one us on. And he said, I'm not doing it. I've finished now. I've, I've made the decision. I've left the band. Uh, I'm not doing it. So I called Chaz back, told him. Chaz said, I'll call Dave. He could always talk Dave around um, yeah. Chaz. So he called Dave up. He convinced him by saying, if you're going to go out, go out on a big one, you know, go out yeah. in front of a big crowd, not with a whimper. And he talked Dave round anyway. And we had no rehearsal. We had nothing. We had no backstage passes or anything because it was that short notice. No emails in those days. Everything came back. How did you get in? <laughs> we parked in the public car park. We turned up in, our, in the car, public car park, with our stage clothes in suitcases, our guitars in suitcases, we walked around the perimeter of the crowd to the backstage area. We had no backstage passes, but we knew the security guards on the gate. They'd all worked sure. for us in the past. I said, oh, come on in, you lot, you know. <laughs> Went to our caravan and we just sat there waiting, you know, for uh, the time to go on. Uh, started to get changed and that. And Tommy Vance was hosting the festival yeah. that year. The rock, He was rock GJ on radio one of those days. He come in the uh, caravan and he said, uh, you're going to storm it tonight. Um, nobody set the festival afire yet over the previous two days because this was Sunday evening. So we sat in the caravan and said, oh, well, we don't know where this young crowd will accept us. You know, they're a young metal crowd. And uh, obviously knew our records, but had never seen us probably. And he said, no, you'll, you'll be fine. You'll, you'll be on and go fine. So <clears throat> we're sitting there waiting to go on. And uh, we had the message come backstage to us. Def Leppard 
who were also on that bill. They were a new band at that time. They hadn't cracked through America or anything. They'd done some dates supporting us in UK just a year or two before. And uh, it come in that they wouldn't go on before us. Because we were the boring old farts, Def Leppard refused to go on before us. They wanted to go on after us. And we said, well, we're not bothered. You know, we thought we were at the end of the line anyway. We said, we don't care when we go on, you know, white snake we're top of the bill anyway. It made no difference to us. So we went on. We had no idea what was going to happen. No idea. There was a big cheer when we went on because we hadn't been announced. We were the surprise. They were all expecting Aussie. And uh, you know the pit in front of the stage at Reading? He thought it was empty. No press in there, no radio in there, no TV, no media in the pit. They were all in the bar getting pissed. And so we goes on, we does our opening number, tore the place apart. We kicked into the second number. I didn't wait to do an intro. I just opened with, uh, went straight into the second number. And uh, the pit suddenly became full of the media because they'd heard the kerfuffle backstage. They'd heard the crowd going berserk. And we stormed it. It just grew and grew and grew, the reaction all the way through. Well, we've listened to it, and I've got to say, and it's because, yeah, the sound of the crowd, and your performance is amazing. It's astonishing. Well, you know, we didn't know what to expect. And, of course, that drove us on. The sound of the crowd Mm. drove us on. And, you know, you never get an encore at a festival, we've been told, unless you're top of the bill. You do your set time and that's it you're off well we we we, we finished the show as we would normal i think we got 45 minutes the allotted set time and we came off and everybody backstage was raving the crowd were raving wouldn't let us go so the promoter said you better get back on and do another so we went back on did mama raw crazy now which was our regular (laughs) encore anyway yeah the crowd still were going wally when we walked off the promoters you better go back on again we're not going to quieten them yet So I went on and said, is there anything you want to hear? Just thinking they'd shout out various songs. And they all started to chant Merry Christmas, everybody. And I said, we're not doing Merry Christmas. It's August bank holiday. We're not playing that. You know, we never played Merry Christmas unless it was Christmas time. And uh, they were all saying, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. I said, okay, we're not going to play, but you lot singing. So I kicked them off in the chorus and and all the crowd sung it, 65,000 of them. Sang it, sang the song. Uh, Noddy, this is uh, it's an amazing sounding record. I mean, it really is. I mean, you know, Slade, Slade Alive is is one of, you know that is yeah, one of the greatest when, live albums of all time. This the most famous the burp in energy. Record, yeah, we'll discuss the burp. But this has. <laughs> I so have to do that energy. every every time after Slade Alive when we did Dolby Amsu. If I miss the burp off, the audience would go mad. Half the audience would burp. Anyway, <laughs> so let, just to fill people in who don't know, so on Dar- Darling Be Home Soon, which is who who did it? It's a John Sebastian song, John isn't it? Sebastian, so yeah, delicate, right. beautiful. Yeah. There's this moment halfway through where you, you hear Noddy go, Burp. Yeah. <laughs> that, went, that wasn't planned. It, oh, we'd been drinking, funnily enough, that that night that that's taken from Slade Alive Volume One, we booked uh, Command Studios on Piccadilly. It's a studio called Mini Theatre. So we booked it for three nights to do a live album. Any crowd could come in. It wasn't a massive crowd at all. It was about a few hundred people. But they'd got all the studio facilities in there to record. So we recorded the three nights on the trot. What came out as the record was the second night. And we'd been at Top of the Pops that, that evening 
doing a Top of the Pops with what became our first number one, which was Cos I Love You. So we were over the moon. I helped do it. Look, I helped. He holds the single. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd had a few bevies. We'd had a few bevies, of course. Gets to the studio, Command Studios. We're all in a good frame of mind because I Love You was, was up there. And it was, you know, a massive record for us. And uh, we went on stage and the plane, you know, we, we, we really kicked it. It was great. And, of course, in the middle of Darling Beyond Soon, which was the one slow song we used to do in the set anyway, you know, I was ready because I'd had a few beers. I was ready to burp, so I did let, let it out, so it wasn't planned at all. <laughs> and having just heard about those young upstarts, Def Leppard, let's hear from singer Joe Elliott. Now, Gary... You have quite the relationship with Def Leppard, haven't you? I mean, hanging out at the Pink Elephant in Dublin, Spandau, yeah. Terence Trent Derby, Frank Goes to Hollywood. I mean, it's sure, I 80s. think a lot of people, a lot of those kind of metal fans back then would be horrified to know. <laughs> well, that, they obviously, Def Leppard were worried about that as well because Steve Norman and, and I sang backing vocals on Rocket on the Hysteria album and never got credited. So obviously, just as they were about to put our names down, all of Def Leppard must have thought, nah, Kerrang yeah. won't like that. <laughs> there is a connection, actually, between Noddy Holder, it's very loose, and my lovely friend Joe Elliott, in that when I went to Joe's house not that long ago in Dublin, he has got all the ticket stubs to every concert he went to in the, in the early 70s in a frame on his wall. And of course, there's Bowie and there's Roxy and of course, there's Slade. In fact, there's everyone on that we've ever had on Rock on Tours is probably on those tickets. He's a massive aficionado of rock music and pop music, yeah. isn't he? And it was, I love this chat we had with him. And if any, anyone wants to go back and have a listen to the whole thing, it's so enjoyable because he knows about every single kind of music. So, and uh, yeah, this is a clip which is about the legendarily difficult process of recording hysteria. Yeah, yeah this is probably because me and Steve Norman were hanging around, right? I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> so doing that album in Ireland when I first met you, uh, do, doing hysteria, and... Um, I remember getting there and you'd been there for months and you'd been working with Jim Steinman producing ah. it. You told me a story that the insanity of that, where he would order everything on the takeaway menu every oh, yeah. single day because he couldn't decide what he was going to eat. The first thing he did is he walked into Windmill Studios and he changed the carpet, right? He couldn't well, work yes with the old... Am I got that wrong? Sorry. You've got it, you've got it nearly right. When we were, in, when we were first in, in uh, Dublin which was February to August 84, we were just writing the record. Then we went to Holland to work with Jim because although Mutt was in with us for the writing sessions, he said, I need a break, I'm exhausted. He'd just done, I don't know, Back in Black, Foreigner 4, um, a Cars album, all back to back, and he hadn't had a break in years. And he said, I need a break. So we discussed who the hell we are gonna get. We tried to get Chris Hughes, um, who turned us down flat. Um, turns out when I met Chris about 20 years afterwards, I said, why did you turn us down? And he went, I didn't. I said, you did? And he said, uh, I never found out about it. He says, that was my old manager. He must have done that on my behalf. Oh, he oh. was so bummed, you know. But anyway, long story short, we picked Jim Steinman. I don't know why, because he didn't even produce Bad Out of Hell. Todd Rundgren did. That's right. So his, his, his chops were more of a writer, and we'd already got seven or eight songs written Gods of War, women, animal in one form or another. And 
we went over to Holland and the first thing he tried to do was change the carpet in the control room. He did have the carpet changed in his hotel room because he didn't like the color. He did order one of everything off the menu, which was became a fantastic novelty because even though we were too stupid to not realize like the bad news scene in, in, in more bad news when they're actually paying for the, for the food when they're shooting the video, this was all on our tab, uh, not his. We were in a complex with four other bands and for about three months, one of those artists was Mink DeVille and Willie DeVille regularly used to poke his head out of the studio and wait to see if we'd gone. And once we'd gone back in, his entire band would just clear the table. <laughs> like seagulls coming in after a, a whale washes up. <laughs> and eventually when we kind of caught them, he went, oh, I'm really sorry, mate. We're like, no, please do. It's just going to get thrown in the bin. So they stopped ordering food. We halved their record budget by letting them eat our stuff. Um, yeah, it got messy, and Steve Clark and, and, and Phil said, we got to get rid of this guy after like five weeks of working with him. Going, this is just awful. Everything we had sounded dated and just nothing like the previous album, which had been a huge leap. Pyromania was this enormous leap where we didn't make albums. We made the album in 82, and everybody was making albums in 82. They were just miking up the drums, miking up the bass, and just sounding like a band on stage. What we did with Pyromania is make an album. We made an album the way that Kraftwerk made one or the Human League, we, we pieced it together. Because the values of the songs was more important than that. We, we didn't care how we got there as long as we got there. And when Mutt said, we can make a high and dry part two, or we can make an album that will challenge people's perceptions of what rock records should sound like. And we were all on board for that. So yeah. we wanted and to do the same thing with, with Hysteria again. And and make the, but Joe, the Phil, Phil you know? had the chops to do it as well. Phil's guitar playing is, yeah, you know, I mean, but we, we all, all had that. the ambition and we all had the, the wherewithal to listen to the boss. You know, you don't employ Mutt Langing unless you're going to listen to him. What's the point of arguing with him? He goes, this will work. And you go, how? Trust me, I've done it before. Okay, cool. And you hear what he does and you go, wow, okay. I'm never going to challenge you again when it comes to that kind of thing. Oh, so talking of which, sorry, just my little thing, Joe, is so the guitar part that was recorded one string at a time. Myth. We did it on one song on Pyromania, actually. And what it was, it was, this, it was a part on the verse of a song called Coming Under Fire. And it's a two-string part that goes from a kind of a... Oh, it's only two strings? Oh, I minor, <laughs> A minor thing. And the problem with it was that... Unlike a piano, when you go major minor, it resonates really badly when you play minors with a distortion. Yes. But if you play them a string at a time, they don't resonate because they don't resonate against each other because they're two separate performances. So for this one bit, Morton said, he'd done this before with, I'm not going to name who, but somebody that you wouldn't expect him to do it with. And he said, no, this will be great. So they just played the root note and then they played the moving note and it sounded like a piano. In other words, it didn't distort. Mm -hmm. And we told this story in uh, in one I could get guitar magazine, and it just became Chinese whispers that we played every single guitar part <laughs> at a time, and I sang everything a word at a time, and all this. It wasn't like that at all. But if we had to do drop-ins on certain bits, that was no big deal. Gary, yeah. you'll remember, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing quite easily, the documentary part of the, do you know it's Christmas? 
when Boy George said, I'm going to have to drop in for that N-word because he couldn't jump that low down from yeah. where his voice was to do it. So he had to punch in. Every singer on the planet is punched in for a word or of course. a phrase or a breath or whatever. Yeah. It's just what it is, but no. Joe, what, Joe, Joe when, when I first arrived at the studio that day, the f and I don't think I'd really took this in as a piece of news, but the first person I met really was Rick and Rick took me in a room and, and and show me his Simmons drum kit and Rick you know had just lost his arm mm. uh, you know I mean just literally a few months before and he was so excited about showing me this Simmons drum kit and how it worked and I will never forget it you know that he could play the hi-hat with one foot and um, and just the idea of your drummer having that sort of terrible accident I mean just Tell us a little bit about that whole moment. Well, what he did, he, he was in hospital in a coma. They managed to reattach the arm after the accident for two days. And I visited him and saw him with two arms. And his brother oh, wow. said, look, touch him. He's warm. It's warm. But then, you know, we left. And a day later, we get the phone call that an infection had set in and they had to take it off again. Thank God for him that he was unaware of this because I think that would have been crippling to... Oh, wow you know, mentally just torture to know that he had it and then he didn't. He did find out a lot later on when he was more prepared to hear that news. But for us, it was devastating to think because we were just thinking, oh, brilliant, he's back on. it would be all right in a year. But then he lost it. And then the first thing that entered him, I said, well, how the hell is he going to do this? And it was Mutt Lang that had visited him in hospital. And the two of them, Mutt had said, you can still play the drums. He says, you know, do you play jazz? He went, no. He says, then you don't need to go on your higher, you lock the thing shut and you go, which is what rock bands do. So you've now got a redundant left foot. Get some pedals and play the snare drum with your left foot. So he ended up getting this piece of sponge at the bottom of his bed. A would help him sit up because he had no balance. You've got to remember when you lose an arm, you lose oh, wow. an enormous amount of balance. It takes you months to regain and relearn. Um, and he started playing drums with three limbs using this piece of sponge as just in his head. You know, he couldn't hear anything, but he'd be like going, da-da-dum, da-da-dum, da-da-dum. And he would just keep practicing. And then one day he said to us, I can do this. And we all looked at each other and went, it's the morphine talking. Um, you know, we were always like, look, he's not going to get fired. He's going to realize he can't do this and he'll, he'll leave. Or if he can do it, he stays. You know, he's a brother. He's... He's not going to get kicked out. We, I think that's just a part of our upbringing to be that way, you know. And so he, he was supposed to be in hospital for six months. He checked out after six weeks because he was bored shitless. And then he, after about two or three weeks in his mom and dad's house, he just said, I'm going back to the studio. And we were in Holland by then. So he came over to Holland and he just hung. He just sat in the control room listening to what we were doing with the now, next stage of his theory, which is the after Steinman and working with Mutt's engineer, Nigel Green, who was a vast improvement. Um, and we were just, you know, watching him improve. He, he got this electronic kit made by a guy called Pete Hartley in Sheffield, which is now in the, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I believe. Um, or it's in, it's in, a, in a similar Hall of Fame. In oh, Vegas. sorry, I thought it was Dave Simmons who'd made that kit. Sorry. I'm... No, no, he, he did have a Simmons kit eventually, I think, but it may have been Simmons parts, but it was all built by this guy called Pete Hartley. Um, it's like a go-kart is what it looked like, you know. 
And he, he had this locked away. We rented a room in, in Whistlord Studios and locked him away in it. And he, nobody went in for four months. He wanted to make all the mistakes on his own. He wanted to fail till he got it right on his own. And we could sometimes hear a bit of noise through the wall. But he'd go in for a few hours a day until he was exhausted. And then he'd just come and hang out with the band or go disappear for a couple of weeks or whatever. But eventually he came to us and he said, I want you to come and listen to something. So we all kind of tentatively walked into this room and he got on the kit and he played the intro to When the Levy Breaks by Led Zeppelin. And there was man tears everywhere. Wow. There really was. It was like, wow, you know. Um, so to speed this process up a bit, he kept learning and learning and learning. And eventually in 1986, we were back working with Mutt Lang, who'd got over his exhaustion, come back to the album, very cleverly, uh, disposed of nearly everything we did and replaced it by hoodwinking us going, let's just do a guitar overdub of that guitar, copy it exact, and then they'd do it, and then he'd lose the other one. <laughs> so we would eventually just have this record that we'd spent 18 months farting around on, but the actual record that you hear didn't take two and a half years. It took just over a year to make, which mm. compared to, say, the Blue Nile is a walk in the park. Because <laughs> that took five years and nobody bought it, you know. <laughs> so we fell okay I like their, rec I like their yeah. records. Yeah, me, it's a great record. Yeah. Now, finally, the only British rock band that could possibly compete with Def Leppard in 1987, Whitesnake. The year of both yeah. hysteria and the huge 1987. Now, obviously, Gary, you have your great relationship and history with Joe Elliott. And, of course, I have mine with The Cove, having toured with him and played on a Whitesnake album, which are so amongst the pinnacle of proudest things I've ever done. I mean, to stand on a stage in Osaka next to David Coverdale about to play Black Dog with Jimmy Page and hear The Cove belt out, Okay, Osaka, what do you say we kick the shit out of this one? <laughs> There's got to be one of the finest experiences any man can know. And he's certainly become the voice of rock on tours, isn't he? In fact, when we did our live show at the Screen on the Green uh, a few months ago, uh, he sent us a wonderful video clip to welcome us onto stage. So he? kindly. He's very much, I would say, he's like the patron saint. He's the, the paterfamilias, yeah. our sort of great benefactor. Yeah isn't he, that we look up to and adore. He really is. And he's been on twice, but uh, this is the first time he came on. And I, I think, I'm sure if you took a straw poll of, from our listeners, this would probably up be up at number one favourite episode, I would have thought. That's true. As long as you don't take it, the straw out of the straw boater that you like to wear as we promenade along the greensward. I know. I felt... You know, the deer stalker wasn't really working. That uh, the straw boater is is definitely. Um, but I was very upset because as, as I was walking along the other day, I heard someone laugh, and only to turn around and see you'd put a penny in the laughing policeman, just to get me. <laughs> get the cove on. I have to say, David. The size of your balls, because you walk into this big established band, you start <laughs> you start saying, right, I think we should change the music. I've got an idea for another guitar player. You make that band your band. I mean, that's well, quite astonishing. 
To some people, music's a job. You know, to others, it's a calling. You know, I can uh, relate to Indian philosophy of commune with the instrument before you take on the affairs of the day. And I have an incredibly fucking overactive muse. I can't pick up an instrument or sit at the piano without something tickling in. So I can fully understand that. I can fully understand. I've really enjoyed uh, Bruce Springsteen's recent yeah. album, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, this. Uh, if people can accept the, the aging, God willing, artistically, gracefully, you know, I can't sing Still of the Night the same as I did in 87. You know, it's tuned down a tone. You need just unbelievably tight underpants for this shit, you know? <laughs> Um, I, I, let's let's just so, let's go back to what we've yeah. not got to. Believe it or not, <laughs> you'd think we were at the height of your career the way we've been talking because you're playing in front of two hundred thousand people, blah blah blah. But you're still not at the height of your career. You're still not in White Snake. No, and yeah, you're gonna, yeah, yeah. about to write some of the most famous songs ever written. I mean, what yeah, made you yeah. suddenly think, you know what? I've had enough with Purple. I want my own thing now. Well, it was drugs. Easy. I turned around. I didn't want to do the, the final UK tour because the band was just falling apart. And, and both John and Ian, Ian Pace, the drums, and, and John Lord were playing with their heads down, you know. And they, these are proud fucking people with a proud heritage. And, and I couldn't be part of that. I couldn't be part of the demise. I did the final tour to accommodate a friend of mine who was no longer a friend and bitterly regretted doing it. I thought it was a... Uh, uh, I could, I, when I was playing Liverpool Empire, looking down and seeing f- hardcore fans looking up going uh, inarticulate with what the fuck was being performed in front of them and how it was being performed. The moment I left the stage, I had the driver take me to my mother's place. Uh, I'd got to a little pub in a place called Hutton Rugby in York- Yorkshire. I was so fucked up, exhausted, completely and utterly wiped out. And it took me nine days to write my resignation letter. I took it down to the office at 25 Newman Street, presented it to the, and uh, they said, do me a favor, don't say anything. Let's ask John and Ian what they want to do. I said, sure. And I flew off to Munich where I resided for the next couple of years. Wow. It was an easy decision. Uh, nobody could understand, of course, after such this glorious Cinderella story, rags to riches or whatever, which pretty much it was. But I think it was also encouraging for people that these things do actually fucking happen. You didn't have to go on Huey Green's Opportunity Knox to get, you know, uh, you know, the audition tape I sent in. I was rat assed on it. <laughs> Ian Pace was the one who picked mine up and he called Richie and he said, well, I think we've got the kind of tone we're looking for, but he's also drunk, you know. Which, which I was because we'd gone to 10CC studio, Strawberry Studios yeah. in Stockport to do some demos in a local band. And we would take this hardcore cider and uh, asthma and bronchitis pills called Dodos. Yeah. Oh, God. We, we, we used to take those. We'd always get... We'd, we'd, I remember in clubbing days, we'd, we'd with get a someone cup, to... Pull a pint of cider with barrel shit in there, you know. We'd always get someone but to go I in the chemist the... and cough. Yeah, 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 yeah. But no, so I said to the engineer, there's this microphone hanging from the ceiling, you know, fixed. And I went, do you have a a hand mic I could use? And he goes, no, no, why? There's your microphone. I'm going... No, no, you know, I'm used to singing with a mic. You know, I'd use the mic stand as a crutch to, to get up to some of these big notes. Uh, and he goes, no, if you can't sing, you can't sing. Oh, my God, straight to the spare guitar case and the dodos and the fucking uh, cider. 
and wailed as, as best as I could in this uncomfortable, unfriendly environment. I don't know how many fucking engineers have ruined people's careers by saying, you know, if you yeah. can't do this or you can't. Remember Clapton, this astonishing John Mayles Blues Breakers albums, the Beano album, the Beano as it's one, yeah. known. You know, he had a 25-watt twin reverb Fender, a Les Paul. You know, if you listen to him in the Yardbirds beforehand, it's great guitar playing. I think he's doing a Telecaster, but it's relatively light. And the guy guys who were engineering that album Clapton starts playing and they rip the fucking earphones off and go oh my god you can't play that loud you can't play that loud. so Clapton's packing his stuff up to go and John Mayall sweet talked him slipping some money and let him record this astonishing wow. record which stands out today and that changed my life and changed all the guitar players in the north of England who who embraced that stuff that was just immense record to get that sound oh my god and just this, breathtaking so david does this tape still yeah. exist yeah. You know what? I don't know. The only thing I got back was a picture of me as a Boy Scout with really badly stained shorts. The purple management insisted on a photograph and I didn't have any. You know, so I had this drunken tape and a picture of me and I opened up with DD Purple. As you can see, I'm always prepared. <laughs> <laughs> and Ian Pace said, I think he's got a sense of humour. <laughs> David, what was your vision for White Snake? Because it was really you and lots of different players come in for each album. It was it was it you and a band of was it session players? How did it? How no, did you see no, it? No, that's how it unfolded, Gary. It's uh, that was really Ian Pace said to me one time. Nobody, you can't expect us. That was you can't expect us all to be live rock and roll twenty four seven. Uh, and I was kind of unaware that I was living rock and roll 24-7 and with, the you know, the partying aspect. But it made me think, you know, if somebody shares a particular vision with me, which is Whitesnake, I always invite musicians to participate who I feel can learn from the experience, but can also contribute to expanding Whitesnake to you know, another rung on the ladder or something. I've always encouraged, hopefully uh, with Guy too, encourage musicians to spread their wings. If they shit in the nest, however, <laughs> that's the party's over. So what, was, what, was, the, what was the big moment? And it, was it with Bernie when you wrote together? No, the, actually the first thing was uh, my local hero was a guitar player called Mickey Moody. Uh, yeah. um, he was in like the big local band who actually made a couple of albums. They were called Tramline. They made a couple of albums on... Um, Island and Mickey was playing like a Jeff Beck style telecaster with a Gibson pickup and it was I thought he was just the tits so we actually stayed in touch as I was getting more disenchanted with the purple thing and there was nobody really backing the Coverdale horse or the Glenn Hughes horse in the management they were just focusing on on John and Ian. So I was given 10 grand to put an album together and an old mate, uh, Roger Glover, who's still a member of Deep Purple, agreed to produce it with me, loved the songs, and I wrote some of the songs for Mickey Moody. So Mickey Moody was like the first member of what became Whitesnake and then I had a chance meeting at a Frankie Miller concert at the Rainbow with Bernie, because Pace Ashton Lord had collapsed uh, and he's a good little hustler is Bernie you know I said well I've, I've got a good guitarist I'm fine he said oh well I'll just come down I'll just come down and he played terrific and a great voice and it was a great nucleus to start with you know 
uh, Fool for Your Loving, uh, the first significant hit we had, was for B.B. Uh, King when he was with the Crusaders. And then I was sitting with Martin Birch, what? God rest his soul. Hang on, so someone covered your record B.B. King covered your record first. No, 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 no. Uh, Bernie Marsden had done an interview for Sounds as a young white blues guitar player interviewing one of the legends, you know, one of the kings, uh, no pun intended. And B.B. had said, yeah, why don't you guys write a song for me? And at that time, he was working with the Crusaders with Pops Blackwell on uh, on bass, you know. Ah. So if you lighten up, if you lighten up the idea of... Uh, those minor high minor chords that BB would excel at. That was the whole structure. But, you know, of course, we put our and Martin and I looked at each other and went, I think we should hang on to this. <laughs> so ultimately, we never, we never sent it on. But that was the original inspiration uh, for, for, was for BB. And here I go again as well, which is, was the other one. You, I think that just got a bigger award. I think Bernie... You you got an award for I that? Think, didn't yeah, you? I think yeah, I think so. He never he never fucking tells me. <laughs> I think he just got seven million seven million airplays. In Something a, in the like USA. that. Yeah, he, he he keeps that to himself. He never tells me. I just get on with my thing. It's a very very big song, very successful song, and I wrote it about the breakdown of my first marriage in, in the Algarve. It was so funny. I was watching the Grand Prix last week in uh, with Lewis Hamilton joining the ranks of the immortals, and uh, and I said to my wife that. That's where I wrote Crying in the Rain and uh, and Here I Go Again, because my wife at the time, the mother of my beautiful baroness daughter, we weren't friends anymore and separate bedrooms and all that kind of stuff. And Here I Go Again, which is now this big rock anthem around the world, was actually about the breakup of, uh, of the, my first marriage. Did that make any sense, the laughing policeman? <laughs> None. doesn't matter. <laughs> well, that's it from our rock gods. Do you know what? We we need to just talk about Bernie Marsden, who yes just passed away. And um, obviously, Bernie wrote some great stuff. Um, Here I go again with Coverdale, and um, we had him on the show uh, a couple of years ago. And he was he was a gorgeous man, and we got to know him a little bit, didn't we, guy? And uh, it was really shocking news to hear the other week that Bernie had, had passed on. And I just want to say, um, you know. Yeah, condolences to his nearest and dearest and family. Yeah, and I actually got to jam absolutely. with him and Zach Starkey. In fact, just one day, coming home from rehearsals uh, with the Saucers last year. And yeah, I mean, a lovely man, a lovely man. And a great kind of fixture in sort of the grand history of British rock. Yeah, go back to have a listen to his episode with us because, uh, you know, I think that's... Um, He's, he's, it's really worth listening to, especially after what's happened. Anyway, Guy, uh, we've got to thank Ian, uh, our producer. We have got to thank him. So thank you, Ian. And um, I've ordered you another extra pickled egg tonight with your Savaloy. Yeah, it's our last day on holiday. I mean, I'm not sure how I'm going to, you know, we've got to pack all that stuff. I mean, your stuff is everywhere. You still <laughs> haven't written your postcards. And I'm, frankly, I'm just bored of, of reminding you. It's going to be quite sad, isn't it? Getting the train back to London and you off to Brighton. And, um, and, and, but we've had a lovely... You back to the sanatorium. Holiday. Yes, we've had a lovely holiday. We and a lovely um, holiday. we will be back very soon with a brand new season of Rock on Tours and loads of great new people to talk to. Until then, it's good night from me. And it's good night from them. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions 
for Warner Music Group UK. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.